Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo, and I am joined, as always, by fellow co-host Joe Wolfond. What up, Cash? Uh, a few things are up, and we're going to talk about them. Like, that is the nature of our program, I suppose. Yes, you ask me what's up, and I tell you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Carl Anthony Towns, out four to six weeks with a strained Oof. calf. You can look at it like from what it looked like at the time. And from what some of the fears were, maybe a strain that's going to keep him out four to six weeks seems uh, like, you know, the, the Timberwolves dodged a bullet in some way. But I hesitate to talk about injuries like that because at the end of the day, a team that was already struggling and needs Carl Anthony Towns on the court and playing well is going to be without him for four to six weeks. So there's not really a lot of ways you can spin this positively. The Timberwolves are 10 and 11. Currently out of the top 10 in the West. Since you asked me, I think just last week, as part of a make a miss, make or miss segment, if they've finally turned the corner, they've lost three in a row, two on the road in Charlotte and Washington, and one at home to a Warriors team that actually can't win on the road. So, Wolfon, how are we, uh, how are we feeling? I mean, other than the obvious of like, oh, this is bad. Carl Anthony Towns is hurt and out, you know, over a month. How are we feeling about the Timberwolves' big picture prospects this season? Because, like, not great, they, dude. They might be they might be fine just to get back in that top ten. If yeah, I mean, first off, I just want to say what an absolute bummer this is for Cat himself. Yeah, because I think he's been good at points, but it seems clear that he just never really got his season all the way on track after missing all the training camp with that throat infection and it's just I don't know it's tough it feels like it's been kind of one thing after another for this dude and I you know if there was any team that just sort of needed to get more reps to figure themselves out it feels like this Minnesota team was it and there have been flashes of them figuring it out you know in the the lead up to me asking you that make or miss question on our last episode, it kind of did seem like they were starting to turn the corner. And we had some caveats that we laid out with that in terms of the competition that they'd beaten. But they, it seemed to me, at least, they were starting to figure out how to play together. And obviously now, you know, they're going to have to find a completely different identity for the next four to six weeks. And... I mean, it's funny because you mentioned it. They're 10 and 11, right? They're, they've been mediocre to bad on both sides of the ball. The starting lineup by the numbers has actually been solid, especially on defense. Uh, they had like a 104.2 defensive rating, which would be basically the best defense in basketball, even though that hasn't always like jived with the eye test. Right. They've actually been good defensively, but almost any combo of four of those starters or fewer has been disastrous. Like the starters without Jaden McDaniels have like a 128 defensive rating. Well, as we talked about last week, McDaniels is the glue. Exactly. McDaniels is the glue and the team is a glue stick essentially. (laughs) Uh, But like also, you know, if you, if you take even with McDaniels, like four of the starters minus go bear, the defensive rating is equally bad. And then if you look at, you know, the four starters minus Cat, it's like an 88 offensive rating. Like they can't score (laughs) without Towns on the floor. So that's what's going to be interesting to me about this is like, I I actually think that some aspects of, of what the Wolves are doing might look smoother without him. Like defensively, I think things will probably look a lot better, especially in transition, which has been a big area of struggle for them this season. But what do they do with the starting lineup? Because he hasn't missed any games this year. Gobert's missed a couple. When Gobert was out, it was Kyle Anderson who moved into the starting lineup. But I don't think you can do Gobert, McDaniels, slow-mo in the front court. Like, that's just not enough shooting, I don't think. Right. As much as, you know, I, I think that helps the defense. And obviously, slow-mo brings some playmaking uh, as a connector that could be really helpful. I just feel like that's going to be a little bit too cramped. McDaniel's out. It's been Austin Rivers who's been starting. But again, like yeah. without Towns there, I don't think that's giving you enough offensive juice. If Torian Prince was healthy, which he's dealing with a shoulder injury now, he might be the guy who 
makes the most sense because he's actually shooting the ball well. He's a passable defender on the wing, but there aren't a lot of great options. Like you're apart from, I guess Prince would be the guy I would point to, but apart from that, I don't know that there's any option where you're not giving something up at one end of the floor or the other. Yeah. It's like you bring Noel in, go smaller and kind of all in on offense to keep you but then the defense further regresses yeah. like Nas well, Reed, yeah, Noel Nas Reed uh, for like the size and he is an improved shooter, but mm-hmm. again, not a good defender, not really like an offensive connector. Like, there, there's no good answer here. Reed, I feel like you'd run into a lot of the same defensive issues that they were running into with Towns. Yeah. But without the same kind of offensive upside. Yeah, exactly. Noel, certainly, like, that would be the best option for the offense. But then, can you survive defensively with a Noel D'Lo backcourt? Especially because, you know, they want to have McDaniels defending at the point of attack. So that would mean if they wanted to continue doing that, you know, one of Edwards, D'Lo, or Noel would have to be guarding the opposing team's power forward, essentially. I think they'd just be too small. And also, I think they like having Noel's creation off of the yeah. bench. Um, so, I don't know. I'm, I'm curious to see where they go with that and how they can figure it out. But it's just tough, man. And, like, I, I don't know. I, I I mean, if they can sort of ride it out and play like 500 ball until Towns gets back, then maybe that gives them some hope of staying. I mean, I don't even, I've kind of given up hope on them even being a top six team, I think at this point, like I think it, at this point, maybe you want to see them fight for one of those home court play in spots. Yeah. Cause you just a depressing thing to say about a team that came into the season with such high expectations, um, especially from, you know, one of the members of this uh, podcast no but it's but, also uh, it's not just like the expectations it's also what they did to garner those expectations like fighting for a well yeah the, those expectations were the result of everything they put into right. building this particular team yes and the, and the picks they gave up and all that which again i don't even want to relitigate that from was it the right like I, we were both pretty high on the wolves in general you more so at, you know as like a potentially number one seed in the regular season but still we were both high on the wolves and were pretty supportive of the giant risk they took in bringing Gobert in and, and what they gave up to get him. But man, you do that. And then like, just to fight for a playing spot. And, and again, it's not like you can be like, well, that happened because, you know, Carl Anthony Towns missed more than a month. It's like, well, when he went down, they weren't even in a top 10 spot. It's just, it's not a great spot to be obviously for the Timberwolves. And uh, yeah, we'll have to see. I mean, like you look at, the top six even if you know the Warriors should obviously eventually jump in there and and probably take your Sacramento Kings out even though the Kings are obviously a much improved team you know the Kings still factor into that seven to ten mix Portland not playing well right now especially with Damo but I'm still a believer in them as a playing team the Jazz even though you know they've slowed down I I have faith that unless they continue to tear that thing apart they can at least like hover around 500 it's not like the wolves are just gonna like easily blow past them like you start going down the list it's like if the wolves fall any farther behind in the next four to six weeks they they're gonna be really up against it just to get in yeah well it's like okay now you have this stretch where you just sort of have to figure things out without towns and i like i said i I think there are some areas in which things might actually look smoother but then he comes back and you're sort of right back at square one when you're like, okay, we didn't really figure this stuff out when you were healthy. Then we were without you for over a month playing in a kind of different way. Now we're reintegrating you and like once again, trying to figure out how to make it work with everybody healthy. And I think there, obviously this team is very much in win now mode. So any kind of, any lost season is kind of a disaster the runway isn't that long but gobert is under contract for what three years after yeah, this? no they're they're very much locked in for a while with these guys like that part is so, fine yeah it's not like there is time and if they figure it out next season rather than this season then okay but you know you obviously would like to see some indications that they are moving toward figuring things out rather than just scuffling and you know throwing shit at the wall and seeing what sticks which feels like a lot of what they've been doing so far um and then you know i i guess what i'm curious to see is 
where's Gobert's offense going to come from? Because so much of that has honestly come from the high-low action with Towns. And I think him and Russell have started to figure out their pick-and-roll chemistry. Edwards also maybe a little bit. Um, are those guys going to continue to make an effort to to keep him involved? Because I feel like Towns was the guy who was making the most effort to keep him involved offensively. And, you know, defensively, Towns was still playing a lot of the, you know, the high wall hedge and recover stuff when he was defending ball screens. But obviously Gobert has mainly been defending in a drop. Are they just a full-time drop defense now? And... Again, with McDaniels, right? It's like, can they afford to continue to have him defending at the point of attack, given now the, you know, the lack of size elsewhere? You know, do they have to sort of shift him to more of a backline, off-ball defensive role, and make Edwards their primary point of attack guy? Um, they got they got a few things to figure out, and I'm, you know, curious to see how they can navigate it, and obviously hoping for a, a speedy recovery from Cat, and hope that he can get his season back on the rails. Yeah. As we all are. Um, all right, let's get to the main theme of today's pod, which is that we are going to dive into last year's conference finals losers, both off to, I'd say, somewhat disappointing starts. That's the Dallas Mavericks and Miami Heat. By the way, I find it interesting that the, the Mavs and Heat are always so intertwined. I mean, going back, obviously, to playing in the finals twice in a yeah. six-final span. Wade and Dirk, obviously, being tied since the 2006 finals, them retiring at the same time. There was that mm-hmm. season, maybe like four or five years ago when they both got off to these terrible starts and then picked up in the middle of the season. And they were the, it was that year. Remember Miami went like 11 and 30 in the first half and 30 and 11. Yeah. The second half, they were like tied together that season. Now, you know, they both make it to the conference finals and lose last year. Here they are. Similar starts. We're talking about them in the same episode. So just kind of yeah. funny to me that the two always- finals they played also like the team that was supposed to win lost exactly both of those yeah. times. Yeah. So um, anyway, 16 years, 16 and a half years after that first finals matchup. Here we are still talking about the Heat and the Mavs together. So, Wolfon, where do you want to start, Dallas or Miami? Let's go Dallas. Okay. The Mavs are 10 and 10 with a top three point differential in the Western Conference, but I think mm-hmm. that's uh, a little misleading. Anyway, again, uh, I'm not sure if you how much of their game against Golden State you saw last night. There was one part of it when uh, the TNT broadcast put up a graphic um, showing the shooting luck, or rather lack thereof, for the Mavericks again. Basically the mm-hmm. exact same story as the start of last season. Where Anyway, this graphic showed Reggie Bullock, career 38% three-point shooter. This season, 28%. Dorian Finney-Smith, career 36%. This season, 34 Tim Hardaway Jr., career 36 This season, 29 Maxi Kleber, career 36 This season, 31 Again, same thing happened last year. They had traditionally good shooters who could not hit the broadside of a barn played a big part in their slow start last year. Now it ended up maybe not regressing to the mean by the end of the regular season, but certainly in the playoffs as they shot their way around Luca to the conference finals, you know, it should slowly regress to the mean again, but it is, you know, an unfortunate part of their early season slide. And I'd say they can afford it less this season because they have bigger issues this year, mainly that they are even more reliant on Doncic without Brunson there. Between his usage rate and his assist rate, 81.2% of Mavs possessions when Luka Doncic is on the floor are either ending in his hands in some fashion or with a Doncic assist. Like, they're getting nothing without him, which is shouldn't be a surprise to anyone listening to this who's watched the Mavs play. Last night, like, perfect example. Now, they get a big win over the Warriors. They needed it to stop uh, a losing streak. Luka Doncic gets a 40-point triple-double in that game, which I, I don't even know how many of those he's had now. Too many to count. Three this season. Three just this season. Okay, 40-point triple-doubles. So the Mavs... Nobody else in the league has any, by the way. The Mavs won Luka's 39 minutes by 22 points. Mm-hmm. They only won the game by three because they lost the nine minutes he didn't play by 19. Like, this is not a new story. It's something we've been talking about. You remember early last year... Uh, we disagreed, I'd say, at least somewhat on my theory that like the Mavs were kind of, not kind of, the Mavs were failing him in the way they had been building around him. And it all stemmed back to like, look, the Porzingis deal just didn't go the way they hoped it would. But here we sit again, like having the same conversation about a team that's overly reliant on Luka Doncic, a team that is very underwhelming, to put it mildly, in terms of a supporting cast, a team that is 500-ish 
you know, their second best player, I'd say talent-wise, Christian Wood, uh, who I'm, I've said like 30 times already to start the season. I'm a big fan of the acquisition of him, getting him in a contract year. Jason Kidd clearly does not value him the way I do or the way the Mavs front office does. You look at it long-term, like, first of all, they're – their roster is just crap. I, was, I don't Luka Doncic. And you look at their contracts, like other than Josh Green, who I know we're going to talk about because we're both big fans of his, other than Green and obviously Doncic, like try to find a positive value contract on that team right now. You want me to try and do that now? I think Kaliba's on a great contract off the top of my head. Finney Smith's on a perfectly acceptable contract, even though he hasn't, you know, offensively been great so far this season. He's like, one of the linchpins of their defense, which was a huge part of them doing what they did last season. I don't think they're in a particularly bad situation. And to take it back to the conversation that we had right around this time last year, just like I cautioned you then about burying them too early, I would, I'm not as high on, on Dallas this year. And we we talked about this preseason. Like I had them in the play and mix. I'm still sort of where I see them ending up, but this team's going to be a royal pain in the ass to play in the playoffs yet again. And I do think a lot of this looks a whole lot better if guys who are supposed to be making shots just start yeah. making shots. And like to your point about them being overly reliant on Luca, it's, you know, how much of that just comes down to Luca and the way that he plays. Like you, you look at his numbers this year compared to last year when they had Jalen Brunson and, his usage rate is almost exactly the same. His total time of possession or average time of possession per game, it's a little bit up this year, but that mainly just comes down to the fact that he's playing a couple more minutes per game yeah. this year. Like if you standardize it for for time on court, his total time per game with the ball in his hands is almost exactly the same. So I think where they really miss Brunson, and obviously the fact that he has leveled up this year just makes it hurt that much more. Although I think it's fair to wonder if he could have leveled up like this playing next, you know, playing second fiddle next to a guy who's ball dominant as Luca, but they don't miss him in the way that like, Oh, it's like a better distribution of on ball reps or it's a more decentralized offense. It's more just about missing that guy who could really reliably and consistently capitalize on the advantages that Luca was creating yeah and just sorry to interrupt but that part of what i talk about being over reliant on luca it's not just like the usage and and the time of possession and the ball in his hands it is to that exact point it's like it's also who else is on the court like what and who do they have that can do something with the advantages he's creating and the the guy that was most adept to do that is no longer there so it's like it's not just that well they need the ball in his hands more whether they do or don't it's that when the ball's not in his hands or when he moves the ball facing a double team, sometimes a triple team, whatever it is, there's not enough quality here to do something with it consistently. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because I actually think, you know, Dinwiddie, just watching him, I feel like has been pretty good, but the numbers don't back that up at all. Like the Mavs have been about 20 points per 100 possessions worse with him on the floor. And it's not like they've been such a disaster with him on court. Like they've been... I don't know. I think, you know, they've been outscored by like four points per hundred with him on floor, which is which is bad, but it's not like catastrophic. But they've been preposterously good with, you know, especially with Luca on and Dinwiddie off. I'm not really sure what's driving that. Like just from watching them, I don't I'm not seeing anything that he is necessarily doing to contribute to that. Apart from the fact that I guess he's not so much about kind of attacking seams and punching gaps. Like he kind of likes to dance with the ball a little bit. And a lot of his jumpers are coming off the dribble rather than off the catch, but he's hitting a lot of those off the dribble jumpers. So uh, it doesn't seem like it ought to be a big problem. And, you know, he's not helping the defense really at all, but the biggest drop off with him on court has been at the offensive end. So that's one that I can't really grasp or wrap my head around right now. But that also gets to an, another aspect of like where they miss Brunson, which is just as a guy who can really keep the offense afloat when Luca's on the bench. Um, and Luca, for as brilliant as he's been the last few years, has never had particularly stark on-off splits. Like the Mavs have always been almost as good with him on the bench as they have with him on court. Um, and that's, that's changed this season, to your point about his splits in the last game. And it's not like... He's not at the the 
Jokic or Steph level of ridiculous on-offs, but it's definitely more dramatic this year than it's been in the past. And I think that's because the bench isn't as good. And you see in, in the last game when Dinwiddie got tossed yeah. with, with, I mean, that was felt like a, aggressive a, a, as a flagrant too. It didn't seem intentional to me, but whatever. He gets tossed and then it's like Luca's on the bench and they've got no ball handling and they can barely even get the ball past half court. It's obviously an issue. And the fact that Luca is playing more minutes this year, he's playing over 37 minutes a game this year, you know, and that is obviously contributed to by the fact that like they don't have enough good options behind him to be able to rest him for more than like 10 or 11 minutes per game. So I'm not saying it's not an issue. Like these are all the reasons that I wasn't high on them coming into the season and the reasons that I still expect that they're going to be capped. But I think you know, like their offense can still function pretty damn effectively with Luca just orchestrating everything and having role players around him who are doing their jobs. But, you know, those role players in a lot of cases haven't been doing their jobs so far this year. And I don't know that that's always going to be the case. And we saw that last year when no one was hitting their threes for like the first half of the season. And then they kind of got hot at the right time and, and they rode that sort of five out offense with really competent defense all the way to the conference finals. And I think you could say the defense probably isn't as good this year as it was last year. And the conference and is better, be- I'd say. And the conference is better. Um, so I'm, you know, I don't think they're going to be in the conference finals again, but I also think that they're still a good team. And they, again, they like, I still wouldn't want to play this team in a playoff series just because that five out offense with Luca pulling all the strings is insanely hard to guard. And we can get into the wood thing, right? Because that's a very interesting conundrum for this team. With him and Luca on the floor together, they have a 122 offensive rating. It's clearly working as intended on that side of the ball. It's a perfect pick and roll pairing because Wood can do basically anything against any kind of coverage yep. in that pick and roll. Like you want to switch it, okay? If Luca can't, you know, attack the front end of that switch, Christian Wood can probably do something on the back end of it. Like he can stick a smaller defender in the post and score over him pretty easily. He can obviously pop. He can roll. You know, his playmaking on the short roll isn't great, but like he's a good enough finisher in those scenarios that it doesn't really matter that much. It's perfect. Um, but obviously where where Jason Kidd is seeing the limitations and the, you know, the playing time for Wood is reflecting that is at the other end. So, you know, I'll put it to you as somebody who was super high on this signing and has seen it work like gangbusters at one end of the floor. Uh, what what do you think the answer is there? Because right now, like what Kid is doing is he's basically tethering Wood to Maxi Kleba. Yeah, those guys are, you know, pretty much always on the floor together, and that's why you know Wood isn't playing that many minutes because Kid doesn't want to play him at the five. I mean, I'd like to see them get him a look at the five, and I'm well aware that the defensive results could be and maybe likely will be disastrous. But like, this is what the regular season is for, is like find out what things look like, especially with a team like Dallas, who just because of the presence of Luka, even for all of the things we've said that kind of seem like they're coming off in a negative light, we're still talking about a team that is 500, that just beat the Warriors last night, that is still in the top 10. Like, Luka Doncic gives you a floor that most teams would kill for, and... I think it allows you to experiment a little more, especially with a roster that is so mediocre around him. Like, there's not a lot set in stone here. You can tr- use some of the regular season to figure things out. And the fact that they, we haven't really gotten a look at Wood in extended minutes at the five, to me, is a disservice to what they're trying to do. Because, like, look, the whole point they got Wood is because it, it was, you know, a lower risk acquisition than getting a guy like Wood would usually be because he's on an expiring deal. But it was also as I continued to rail against last year, they had so few options to like meaningfully improve this roster around Doncic. And Wood was probably like the highest end outcome for improving it, given that like the limited assets they had. You should be like leaving no stone unturned in trying to find out how you can maximize this guy in your lineup. And again, that's not like they might, they could try it and it will be a disaster. And the defense will be so bad that they realize within a week, they can't do this anymore. But you have to at least explore it investigate it that's the way I feel this kind of like stubborn way kid is going about it to me is like it's not achieving anything it's like the worst case is it's gonna be bad right defensively but if you if you don't even put it out like you don't even see it like what are we doing here yeah I mean is it is that just about okay like 
kind of pick a lane and either lean all the way into offense or lean all the way into defense and make up your mind? Or is it just, but what I'm, is it just no leaning all the way into offense is the way that this team is going to win and they should just go for it. Because I can tell you, I, I, I don't think they need to see it to know how it's going to go. Like that team with wood at the five is going to be really, really dynamic offensively. And it's really going to struggle defensively in the, in the limited minutes that they've done it. That's exactly what's happening. Right. But that's what I'm saying. But at least give it some time to see not whether, Oh, it can be better defensively, but what that formula could deliver for you. Like maybe you do try it a week or two, like give it extended minutes and Jason Kidd. Maybe you realize, yeah, we're not as good defensively as I want us to be, but we're winning more games because our offense is just about unstoppable. Like at the end of the day, as a coach, as a like front office, you're you're trying to find the formula that gives you the best chance to win as many games as possible, right? And put you in the best chance to win a championship, especially with a, a player as transcendent as Luca. So, like, I, I don't know. It just seems crazy to me with a team that's not good enough anyway right now that they're not at least considering the like idea that with Luka Doncic and Christian Wood on the roster, maybe it's worth exploring whether going all in on the offensive end and seeing what that does for you can deliver. Mm -hmm. You know, again, not guaranteeing it's going to work, but it's just crazy to me that they're not even like considering it. And I do wonder too, because the front office traded for Wood, knowing about, you know, his history and like the defensive concerns and all that. It's nothing new to them. Like, I would really love to be a fly on the wall in conversations between the front office and Kid. How on board are they with the, with, with the fact that Kid has pretty much stymied his impact on this team so far? Has he stymied his impact or has he played him in such a way that his impact can be felt in its maximal form? I think they're kind of using him in the best, you know, maybe they could be playing him more minutes, like 30 minutes instead of tw- 25 minutes a 100%. game. But I think pairing him up with Kleba is very much a good idea. And the numbers with those two on the floor together have been really strong and actually pretty strong at both ends of the floor. And with both of them, you kind of do still get, like they can play five out. Yes. You know, they can have two, they can have two bigs on the floor and still play five out when it's him Dude. and Kleba. But having that layer, like this is my thing. Cause what, what do you think is the best coverage to deploy wood in when he's defending ball screens? That to me is like the big question. And that question becomes a lot easier to answer when Kleba's out there with him, because then, you know, if you want to bring him out, you know, to the level, or if you even want to switch him out, which they do with him a fair amount. I was going to say anything but drop. (laughs) Yes. Right. But that's, that's really only tenable if, if there's another big out there with him. But then that's fine. But then to your point, then play him more minutes. If if the reason he's only getting 25 minutes is because they want to tether him to Maxi Kleba and they don't want him to play the five. Okay, then guess what? Play both of them together more and keep your mm-hmm. best five players on the court more often. And if that's not the reason, then I don't know. Then find minutes for him at the five and see what it's like. But whatever it is, like they've got to find more minutes for this guy because again, like whatever you think of Christian Wood, he represents the high-end outcome for this team while on an expiring contract while being a guy they very much took a flyer on, specifically just to see if he could raise a ceiling of a team that had very limited avenues to get better around a transcendent talent. And it does not seem like they are exploring those avenues right now. Yeah. One thing I would say too is, like, when you watch them, it kind of becomes clear when Wood is defending an action that the rest of the guys on the floor don't trust him. Like, even when he sort of is in position or seems to have the ball pretty well contained, the amount of help that they're shading his way screams out, we don't trust you to contain this. And I don't know if that's the players on the floor reacting to to seeing it and being like, oh, man, we better we better come over and show some extra bodies because we don't trust this guy. Or whether that's the coaching staff telling them, like, yo, don't trust this guy. <laughs> you know. Yeah. But whatever it is, I think you know, part of the the negative impact that you see him having on their defense is just a result, like, it, it's a result of the way that the other guys on the floor react to to him defending those actions. Like, it's, yeah, um, it sort of has this downstream effect where they, they find themselves in rotation almost no matter what. So, I don't know, maybe them trusting him a little bit more would actually be beneficial and just, I guess, see what he can do with a little bit less help. Or maybe that's not tenable. Well, one way or another, it's like this is, especially looking ahead, you know, when when the leverage kind of cranks up and the games get more important, it, 
trying to find that offense defense balance. Like that's the biggest question that this coaching staff and this team is going to have to answer. And I'm, you know, obviously curious where they're going to land on that, but given everything that kid has said and done so far, it, it seems like he's going to lean more towards the defensive side of things. And, you know, much to what seems to be the chagrin of Mavericks fans everywhere. I don't know that that means a bigger role for Christian Wood necessarily. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. Uh, I mean, I mentioned wishing I could be a fly in the wall in any discussions between the front office and Jason Kidd so far this season about Christian Wood's usage and role. I'd really have loved to have been a fly on the wall wherever Jason Kidd was at the moment he found out that the Mavericks were trading for J- uh, Christian Wood. Because based on the way he's utilized them and the things he said, like I can imagine he was not very pleased with that decision. But anyway, I think I think we're all Christian Wood and Mavericks. Actually, no, we haven't talked about Josh Green yet. I mean, I don't, okay, I don't know well, how much look, he wants. He was, he, he was one of your breakout players coming into the year. So why don't you cook on, on Josh Green? Look, I mean, look, the numbers aren't... Like if someone who hasn't watched much Mavs basketball hears this, goes and look at the numbers, and they might think, like, what the hell are these guys talking about? He doesn't seem like that good of a player. I just urge you to watch a little bit of Josh Green and and definitely not use his individual numbers to cast him aside just yet. I think one of the reasons I was big on him, even going back to last year, is that I thought he was one of the few guys that could be an individual defensive difference maker. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's clear defensive upside there. I think his effort and his like awareness is really good on that end. I think as the shot comes along, like again, I think he can be, I think a floor for a good floor for him would be like a solid three and D guy going forward. I think that obviously fits around Luka Doncic and how the Mavs want to play with Luka Doncic at the center of everything. And I know you kind of joked in uh, in text correspondence with me earlier this week about how, you know, Josh Green, you love him you just, as long as he doesn't dribble. But I do think there's also something to like letting guys kind of find their way. Like we're talking about what a third year player, early 20s, yep. again, on a team that really desperately needs to try to find some other young guys who pop around Luca because they're not looking at being a cap space team for at least a couple of years. Draft pick wise, you know, they're probably going to be looking at like mid first round picks all the time. They need some of these guys to pop. And I think you have to let a guy like Josh Green explore his limitations on the offensive end. And so it's going to look ugly at times, but I still do have faith, you know, in a guy that apparently put a lot of work in over the summer with Kyle Lowry, that he could slowly become a better overall offensive player. He's one of their few like high upside youngsters around Luca. They got to let him find out how high that upside is. Yeah, I mean, look, I him putting the ball on the floor, if he's attacking a closeout, I got no issue with that. It's more like letting him try to dribble from a standstill and make something happen. Like there hasn't been a lot of skill progression in that area, but as a as a guy who can actually extend advantages, like he's been one of the best guys on the Mavs at actually doing that, right? As a, a sort of drive and kick engine, he actually is a pretty good passer on the move. So in that capacity, I think he's actually been really good and he's actually drawing those closeouts because he's hit 50% of his threes this year, 22 of 44 so far. So he's doing it on exceptionally low volume. I think he's averaging fewer than four field goal attempts per game. His usage rate is like 12%, but he's more or less doing what he needs to do, which is just keep the defense honest. And then, you know, as long as he can stay on the floor at the offensive end, like his defense is going to be a really big factor for this team. So um, I, I like how he's sort of fitting into the machine right now. And it would be nice if he could give you a little bit more, you know, secondary playmaking. But I think as far as just being a guy who can kind of keep the drive and kick machine going, where it doesn't have to be, you know, things stall out and you throw the ball back to Luca to try and create something once again, then that's totally fine. And like, you know, the he, he's been part of most of their most effective five-man combinations so far this season. So um, I think they have to be really pleased with what they've gotten from him so far and you know i don't think he's gonna sustain a 75 percent true shooting over the course of the season but i think again like the thing that i pointed out this season that he was gonna have to do in order to keep the offense viable when he was on the floor is like you know dissuade an opposing team from sticking a center on him and then putting you know a forward on like kleba or wood to where then those two man ac- actions with luca become switchable and you're taking away the pop, you're taking away the roll, 
and the center is able to roam off of green and that kind of ruins their offensive flow and their spacing. And with the way that he's playing right now, like that's not really an option because not only is he hitting threes, but he's also able to make plays in space. So if he continues to do that, then I think he can be a valuable ingredient on both sides of the ball. All right. Now I think we're Mavericks out. You want to take the break, come back and talk heat? Let's do it. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, well, Fawn, the Miami Heat, actually in the same spot, just opposite conference that the Wolves are, who we opened the show talking about, 10 and 11, 11th in the Eastern Conference. Now, they are second in man games lost due to injury, fifth in the number of different players who've missed time due to injury already this season. Jimmy Butler remains out with a knee issue. Uh, Oladipo and Hero have missed time. All of that has led to Kyle Lowry being top five in minutes, um, which, look, he's been a lot better than he was last season. Looks a lot more, like not, he's obviously not peak Lowry anymore, but he looks closer by a wide margin to OG Lowry than he was last season. The on-off splits are kind of starting to return. We're even on nights when he has like a poor shooting night, you end up looking at the plus minus and it's like Kyle Lowry plus four in a game, the Heat lost by nine or something. But the flip side to that is that the Heat should not need Kyle Lowry at this stage of his career to be top five in minutes played to keep them afloat. And unfortunately, that is what they've needed so far, if you even consider this staying afloat. They have a top nine defense, but they have a bottom eight offense. And to me, the concern watching them, both eye test-wise and numbers-wise, is that I'm not sure how much better this offense really gets. Like, don't get me wrong. Upside-wise, in theory, of course, the offense is better when they're healthy, with Jimmy Butler on the court, with Kyle Lowry and Bam Adebayo and Hero there. But... I don't know, man. Like, I'm not convinced about this team's overall offensive upside. Like, their most used five-man lineup right now, which is Kyle Lowry, uh, Tyler Hero, Caleb Martin, Jimmy Butler, Bam Adebayo. It's offensive rating of 111.1 per 100 possessions. That would be equivalent to the 18th-ranked offense right now. If you go with their, like, top four players, right? Lowry, um, Butler, Bam, and Hero. When those four guys are on the floor together, no matter who the fifth guy is, their offensive rating would be equivalent to a bottom five team right now. So what have you seen from this team? I mean, we can start with their offense because that's where I'm leaning right now. What have you seen from them offensively that either would have you disagree with me or maybe that have you agree with me and say that there is real reason for concern here of whether this offense can be good enough for this team to come anywhere near contending again. I mean, they're not shooting the ball nearly as well as they did last year. And that like the shooting was really a huge part of what kept them afloat. I mean, maybe that seems obvious. Like, yeah, shooting the ball well really helps. But this was a team, you know, starting Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo together, two guys who don't really space the floor, you very much need the other guys around them to shoot the ball really well to to make that viable. You know, for as much as, and, and we can talk about this on both sides of the ball, like I am just consistently enamored with the ingenuity of Eric Spolstra and his coaching staff. There's only so much you can do to cover up those limitations if guys aren't knocking down shots. Obviously, the Duncan Robinson falloff has been really damaging on that front, even though they kind of found a ready-made replacement in Max Struess. Like, they run him in all those same actions, like coming off the dribble handoff, shooting off a movement. But he's just not as good a movement shooter as Duncan Robinson was, at least in his first couple years in Miami. And he doesn't force the defense to react in the same kind of way. And I think, ultimately... It's, it's a similar issue to the one that they've had at various points in the last few years where they just don't have enough of that defense bending element. You know, like they struggle to get two on the ball and for as much as their off ball movement and their cuts and their screens can be disorienting and, and put teams in rotation, uh, even without that element, it just becomes a lot more arduous and harder to do. So uh, and then, yeah, the, you're, you're mentioning how much better can this offense get? Like, Butler, like they have a really hard time getting to and scoring at the rim, right? And that's one thing where Butler coming back 
addresses that almost in its entirety. Without him, they have like virtually no rim pressure and they're not shooting the ball well. And then those two issues compound each other where, yeah, if you're not shooting and you're not spacing the floor, then it makes it that much tougher to get to the rim. And if you're not really getting to the rim, you're not creating the same kind of drive and kick three-point looks. So it, it makes it all more difficult. But again, you know, Butler coming back doesn't really address the three-point shooting. And I... I don't know. I mean, is that going to remain an issue? Is Struce going to shoot the ball better? Is Lowry going to shoot the ball better? Maybe. Um, but that's one big issue. And then I think the the one that I would really point to is a complete lack of front court depth. Like Caleb Martin has done a hell of a job, you know, basically stepping into that starting power forward role. But behind him, and I know injuries have played a big part in this, but like, yeah, Deadman has been fine, I guess, as a, as a backup five. He's been okay. Uh, but his defense is a bit of an adventure. And then you see the Heat relying on guys like Haywood Highsmith and Orlando Robinson, who I swear are real guys. Yeah, and Jamal Kane. Ever heard of him? Because he's getting consistent minutes for the Heat now, too. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, look, again, you mentioned them being, what were they, number two in man games lost so far? Number two season? in man games so, lost and number five in the in the total number of different players who've actually missed time. Right. Seventh um, in that stat. Remember we talked about it last week where like Spotrack uh, yep. sorts it by like value loss. The Heat would be seventh in value loss based on contracts and, and guys that have been out. So a lot of this does get addressed if or when they get healthy. But to me, that still just takes them into being, you know, a solid to good team rather than one that's going to be contending in the East, which I don't think that, the Miami Heat organization is going to be satisfied with that. You know, like they're, I, I don't know what the fix is. I'm sure they're thinking about moves that they can make and ways that they can augment this roster in a way that's going to get them back to that level. But I don't know how many moves they have left to make on that front. And they're kind of running out of runway here with when Butler's been healthy, his play has, I've seen very little drop off there. Like he's still unbelievable when he plays, but like part of getting older is it becomes harder to avoid and recover from injuries. And Lowry has obviously, you mentioned playing as many minutes as he's playing. He's been able to shoulder that load so far, but what does that look like toward the end of the season? Um, and, and how healthy can Butler ultimately be this season and moving forward, you know, like they're, they're on the clock dude. And so they need to kind of get this thing figured out pretty quickly. If they're going to figure it out at all. If you put Butler, Bam, Duncan Robinson, who, I mean, has fallen off a cliff, obviously. Tyler Hero and Caleb Martin together. That is almost $140 million worth of salary two years from now. Mm -hmm. Like, you talk about them kind of running out of runway when it comes to even, like, ways to get this team better. I know I have extolled the virtues of Pat Riley's Miami Heat many a time on this podcast over the years. I've sat here with wonder as I talk about paths he's found to another star when no one could see it existed, right? Like when they when they got Butler, they didn't have cap space going into that year. Jimmy Butler wanted to go to Miami. They made it work. But at some point, you got to run out of picks, he does. And this does seem to be like we're getting to that point for Miami. When you look at the money they've got invested long-term, when you look at their draft capital, like when you look at the ages of some of these guys, you and I came into this season both projecting them as a play-in team. Like mm -hmm. them being one game under 500 and an 11th, given the injuries they've had, probably tracks with where we had them, had they even been healthy. So for us, I don't think it's just too much of a shock or that much of a disappointment. But again, to, to your point about how the Heat as an organization view this internally, this has to be like a disaster, right? In terms of them thinking they're still at the level where they can compete for a championship. Like, I, I just don't think they are even when healthy. And that's a problem given how pot committed they are. Yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, the if they're looking at this like this is going to be our team moving forward, it has to be the defense that's going to carry them. I mean, that was the case last year, too, and it almost worked. They almost got to the finals on the strength of their defense. So I guess the big question is, you know, can can it be that good again? Can it be good enough to off to offset the offensive limitations that we've talked about? And I think that's a really interesting question because at full strength, this defense is still very, very good. Again, I talked about like the ingenuity of Spolstra and his coaching staff. They are, first of all, they're running an insane amount of zone <laughs> and different different variations of it. And like they're kind of doing 
you know, they've done some stuff where they're like full court pressing and that flows into zone. They've done some one, three, one, like they've done a lot of different things uh, that have sort of made this all work. And especially with Butler out, I feel like they are switching with Bam less, which is something we've talked about before where we feel like, yeah, he's a great switch defender, but do they maybe over switch with him just because they can? And that leaves them vulnerable on the backside. I feel like with no Butler there, and then just really not having enough in terms of like a second wave of defense and supplemental rim protection. I think they're kind of like, okay, we need to do what we can to keep Bam closer to the basket. So they're playing him in a bit more drop. And then they're also, you know, with the way that they're playing zone, that allows him to sort of stay on the back line rather than getting dragged out to the perimeter. So they're finding ways to make it work. But, you know, I guess I would say on both sides of the ball, the fact that so much ingenuity is required yeah. Feels like a bit of a red flag. 100%. The, the one thing I'll say is we, we had them projected as a playing team. I still think they'll be in the playing mix in some fashion. I, I'm not picking them to even win a playoff round, obviously, if I've got them in the play-in. But if you're Boston and Milwaukee, you sure as hell don't want to start the playoffs having to play Miami um, on your quest to try to win a championship. So if if nothing else, this team will find a way to be a pain in the ass in the first round of the playoffs. Again, which is exactly what I said about Dallas, right? Yeah, exactly. Which is funny. Again, still, still intertwined, but bigger picture wise, if someone had said to us, Hey, the heat are going to end up being a a pain in the ass in the first round and lose to one of Boston or Milwaukee, I think both of us would have been like, yeah, we could see that internally the heat, like there's no way in hell they accept that. So Mm. it'll be interesting to see both what happens over the course of this season with that team, but also what happens like going forward after this season, if it, all goes the way we think it will this year because internal and external expectations for that franchise especially are very much out of whack. One thing in terms of like the way that they play defense and and the zone is part of it, but it's obviously just their defensive principles. And this has been true for the last, you know, three years or so where there's a huge emphasis on keeping the ball away from the middle of the floor and away from the rim. They do a really good job at suppressing opponent rim shots. And when opponents do get there, they shoot like 70% because there's just not a ton of rim protection there. So that's why they do what they do. As a consequence, they give up a ton of threes. This is nothing new. Like right now, they have the highest opponent three-point attempt rate in the league. And I I asked Eric Spolster about that, actually, when Miami was in Toronto, about that trade-off. And he was like, I was like, you sort of accept this as a trade-off. And he was like, no, I don't. <laughs> uh, he, he basically was like, I don't, I would never say that I accept that. Um, and he seemed like I I was kind of going there thinking like, okay, well, this is part of your, like your defensive principles. Like this is, you know, the way that you guys have defended for the last few years. Surely this is intentional, but he seemed not pleased with the number of threes that they were giving up. I love Spo, man. Yeah. Um, So I'm curious to see, you know, can they actually bring that down or is that just inevitably going to be a consequence of the kind of rim protection by committee that they like to do? I might as well start our make or miss segment off. With a Miami Heat related question. Okay. <laughs> and that is more big picture and future minded. And it, I concede that it might be impossible to answer. So I'm just going to ask you to find a way to answer it anyway. Given all that we've talked about with the Heat and given how limited that runway is, what their long term ceiling might be with this core, the kind of guy Jimmy Butler is, who I've, look, I've stated over and over again, I still stated, I think he's the perfect superstar for Heat culture. I think those. Those two entities, Jimmy Butler and the Miami Heat, go together so well. But he's no spring chicken anymore either. Everything we've said about the Heat. Make or miss, Joe Wolfond. Mm-hmm. Jimmy Butler doesn't end up finishing this contract in Miami. This contract, by the way, runs through either the 2024-25 season or if he were to pick up a player option, the 2025-2026 season. Miss. I think... it. it Regardless of where the team goes from here, even if they sort of continue to struggle and aren't making it out of the first round, it just seems like too perfect a marriage yeah. of player and organization and goals and personality. I think he's going down with the ship one way or another. I feel like him and, and Riley and Spolstra and that whole organization are just very much aligned uh, in the things that they value. And I don't see the relationship ending badly in the way that it's ended badly for Butler in some previous stops. So I think that he will want to stay there. I think they'll want to keep him there. And like I've said, I haven't seen very much drop off in terms of his production when he's managed to stay healthy. So 
I don't think, you know, even looking a few years down the road that he's going to be necessarily a shell of himself that they're going to be looking to move off of. And even if he was like, he's going to be making, you know, close to $50 million in the latter stages of that contract. So if he is like, good luck moving him anyway. So I think for all those reasons, I actually do expect him to finish out his contract there and probably even finish his career there. Yeah, I'd probably agree with that. Right. What do you got for me? Uh, Okay. Moving to one of Jimmy Butler's former teams, the Philadelphia 76ers. Rough start to this season. Things seemed to go from bad to worse when James Harden went down with that foot injury. At the time that he went down, the Sixers were 23rd in the league in defensive rating. Since he went down, the Sixers have by far the best defense in the league. I'm talking four and a half points per hundred better than any other team. As a result of that, they are eight and four in that stretch, despite their offense predictably also taking a downturn. And that includes six and a half games where Tyrese Maxey has been injured as well, and four games in which Joel Embiid was out of the lineup. Now, there has been some opponent shooting luck contributing to that. They have the lowest opponent three-point percentage in the league right now. But a lot of other factors that should be sustainable, or would be sustainable, you would think, if the personnel was to remain the same as it's been. But of course, that is not going to be the case. James Harden is nearing a return. Maxi probably still a couple weeks away, but eventually, you know, he'll be back before too long. So make or miss cash, the 76ers can remain a top 10 defense. And not to be top one, a top 10 defense once they're starting backcourt returns. When you started with Sixers talk, I thought this was going to become make or miss. Shake Milton is now the best guard on the planet. I don't even need to ask. That's already a given. So, But no, in terms of uh, what you actually asked or the statement you threw out there, I'm going to say it's a make. I think that for as many defensive concerns as there are maybe uh, like on the overall roster, you have Joel Embiid at the center of things. A Joel Embiid, by the way, that since returning has looked a lot more like himself, especially on the defensive end where I thought early in the season – even though some of his individual numbers were still good, if you watched him eye test-wise, like he just wasn't quite himself on the defensive end. Since he's got back and looks healthy again, he looks like himself on the defensive end. And when Joel Embiid is himself on the defensive end, your defensive floor as a team is pretty damn high no matter what the four guys in front of him are. So, yeah, when they're healthy, even with both of James Harden and Tyrese Maxey on the court and Tobias Harris, like, can they still be a top 10 defense? I'm going to say, yeah, they can because Joel Embiid is that damn good on the defensive end. And they will figure out some schemes and things to help cover for some of those other guys when you've got the insurance of Embiid at the back. So defensive regression once they get all those guys back, yes, but complete drop off, no, I think they'll maintain a top 10 standing on the defensive end. Yeah, I do think the Embiid piece is the biggest one. And while this coincides with Harden going out of the lineup and there is some causality there, I think uh, the bigger piece of it has just been Embiid coming back and looking like peak Embiid defensively as opposed to the... He, he was like a negative defender the first few games of the season and he was coming off of about with plantar fasciitis and then he had a non-COVID illness that knocked him out. So he wasn't operating at 100%, I guess. But since coming back, he's been unbelievable. And the Sixers have also, like, to my eye at least, really cranked up their zone usage as well. And that's interesting. It's been pretty successful for them. I wonder if that's something they continue to do with Harden and Maxi back because those guys at the top of a zone, it's not going to be as effective as, you know, like DeAnthony Melton and Daniel House at the top of a zone. So... Correct. Uh, You know, we'll see. And then, like, I think that actually the biggest thing was just they were getting completely annihilated in transition early in the season, and they've really shored that up. And that is the one thing I would point to where having Harden back feels likely to drag them back down to being one of the worst transition defenses in basketball. So keep, keep your eye on the transition defense. But I tend to agree with you that they can stay top 10. Hit me with your next one. By the way, before I transition to the last one, just because I had mentioned uh, the Shake Milton thing, joking that he's the best guard on the planet, in case people listening or not, didn't get the joke, Shake Milton after uh, averaging... What joke? Again, who's a, joking? After averaging 3.9 points in 12 minutes per game through the Sixers' first 10 games, has averaged 22.7 assists and 6 rebounds on 59-48-88 shooting over his last 7 games. 
to keep the injury battered Sixers afloat. Uh, so that's what I was talking about. My next one for you pertains to the Washington Wizards somewhat, but more so to Kristaps Porzingis. Mm-hmm. In case you haven't been paying attention to the Wizards, not talking to you because I know you cover the NBA for a living, but to, to our audience uh, in general. Christos Porzingis has quietly had a really strong start to the year. I think he's been a positive on both sides of the ball. Now, the catch here is that this could be a contract year for Christos Porzingis. But the thing is, coming into the year, just based on kind of all the injuries in his past, where he is in his career, and whether he could really get and like any kind of long-term big money contract, I think a lot of people came into this year thinking it was very much a possibility that he was going to pick up his $36 million player option for next season. Make or miss, the start Kristaps Porzingis has had means he will decline that option and actually become one of the more sought-after free agents in the 2023 class. I think it's a make. I think, well, it will very much depend on how the rest of the season goes for him on the health front. Because if he stays relatively healthy this year, I think all the things you mentioned about his checkered injury history are going to be reasons for him to want to capitalize on this, you know, call it a platform year. Say, oh, here, I just had the season where I performed really well and actually stayed healthy. This is my opportunity to get paid to maybe get a long-term deal. Whereas, like, if he comes back, you know, picks up that option and then is on an expiring, that's a huge risk for him, you know, going into a season. Like, has he strung together two healthy seasons in a row in his entire career? Like, I don't know that he's going to want to chance that. So even if you know, there's some sacrifice on the AAV front where, you know, the annual value comes down, but he gets some more long-term security. I think that's going to make sense for him if he manages to get through this season relatively unscathed. Yeah. And the AAV 100% will come down. Obviously, he's not going to get a $36 million per year contract, but that long-term might like coming into this year, again, I think there would have been questions about how much more than 36 total he would have even got on in the next like long-term contract. Whereas now, Again, if he can finish this year out healthy, playing the way he is, he'll get at least 40 plus total on his next contract, probably a lot more than that. So I think it becomes more of a no-brainer to decline that player option. All right, what's your last one for me? We came into the season cash a little bit, I don't know if worried is the right word, because it's not like we have anything personally invested, but certainly thinking that this could be a tumultuous and maybe even a disastrous season for the Phoenix Suns after the way that last year ended. And obviously everything that happened in the off season, you know, with DeAndre Ayton and Chris Paul's age, all these reasons that we thought a 64 win team might turn into a team that struggled to stay out of the play in mix this year. But the Phoenix Suns are still atop the Western conference at 14 and six. They have the best net rating in the conference, the second best net rating in the NBA top six on both sides of the ball, still looking like that same consistent humming machine that they were last year and the year before. And that's without Cam Johnson and with Chris Paul missing a bunch of time. So make or miss cash in a very balanced Western conference. The Phoenix Suns are the team to beat. I'm going to call it a miss only because I do think the recently rejuvenated Golden State Warriors, the defending champion Golden State Warriors, when their best guys are all healthy and on the court, come the spring, will be the team to beat. But I get where you're going with the general idea of this, that the Phoenix Suns are still a lot better than even we gave them credit for, that they are a lot bigger than the kind of off-court distractions we thought might derail them this season. They are still very much a well-oiled machine with a championship ceiling. Chris Paul's been out, I know, but still, like even when Paul's in there, it is not what he used to be with two star impact guards. Mikel Bridges is having a career year to start. Ooh, like, man. Looks like such a, a more complete player, and he was already a highest end role player, if you want to call him that, before this year. DeAndre Ayton has been solid, I'd say, although still maybe leaving something to be desired. And I, whether it's realistic by even 1% or not, I continue to advocate for the fact Phoenix should be trying to turn DeAndre Ayton and a bunch of future assets into Anthony Davis. But that's neither here nor there for now. I'd say the make is that the Suns are still a championship caliber team, that they have a chance to win the title this year. Miss in that they're the team to beat, though. You still think Warriors? I still think Warriors. As silly as that may seem strictly based on this first quarter of the season, again, if you you look at like the last week and a half, two weeks as the Warriors have started to get rolling here, 
Steph has been arguably the best player in the league. He's in that conversation to start the year. It's not like he's dropped off. We've talked in episodes past about how good there's they still are with their best players on the court as they will be come April to June. So as good as Phoenix is, I'd still say the Warriors are the team to beat if we're talking, you know, win four out of seven against each other. I chose this question specifically because this is a topic that I want to hit on on our next episode. So let this be a bit of an appetizer for that when we are going to discuss the best teams in the West because there are a couple we haven't mentioned. I mean, the Grizzlies, the Nuggets. I think it's it's a free-for-all right now in the West in a way that I don't feel like it really has been for a long time where there are, you know, between like, I don't know, three and six teams, I feel like, that could make a credible argument for being the team to beat in that conference. The Suns are certainly one of them, but I, I think it's interesting because it's not top heavy. And I don't know, is that the result of just the incredible depth or is it the result of there not being any one superlative team um, or just a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B? One way or another, I think it's a really interesting question and that's what I want to hit on next episode. So again, that's a teaser. We'll be back either later this week uh, or early next week with that conversation. But for now, Cash, I'll kick it over to you for a fan shout out and a sign off. No, I'm going to kick it back to you for that fan shout out because I believe oh, you have. Of course. Okay. I got to I gotta give this one. My, my good buddy, Nat Basin, has been bugging me for this shout out for I don't know how long. And I was putting it off for a while because I was saying we don't do friend shout outs on the show. And then Cash, you did a couple. So and also this he, one in respect to Nat, with respect to Nat, based on what you've told me, this one is goes beyond just, oh, we're shouting out one of our friends. This, this is a good one. My friend Nat, who is a, a, a listener to the show, he listens to almost every episode. He always feels the need to give me notes on things that he specifically doesn't agree with. He never tells me what he does agree <laughs> with. He just says what he doesn't. Um, but he is also he's going uh, to Italy on his honeymoon fairly soon. And because of that, he is uh, learning to speak Italian through Duolingo, uh, the um, language learning app that, I don't know, I've never used it, but people seem to really like it. So Nat is learning to speak Italian in advance of his honeymoon. And he learned something recently on Duolingo that he thought would be of interest to Cash specifically. And in accordance with this shout out, he wanted me to tell this to Cash. He wanted me to say, I don't know if I'm going to butcher the pronunciation. I probably will, but se un pagliaccio. Oh, that's pretty good. It's se un pagliaccio, but you are a clown is what Nat has said to me in my family's language of origin. Uh, and I got to say, Nat, I respect the hell out of that. One of, if not my favorite shout out so far through 270 episodes, because uh, as I've called myself before, the world's foremost purveyor of clowns and fugazis, anyone who's willing to send me a statement in Italian calling me a clown is a certified not clown and certainly not a fugazi, a real one to the nth degree. So Nat, appreciate you. And also I will say, uh, if you need a tour guide for your honeymoon, I'm available. Uh, if you can postpone your honeymoon until the NBA offseason, we can make it a three-person trip. I'd love to go. <laughs> and uh, yeah, then we can uh, tell Wolfon all about our great stories in Italy. But now I also want to say, so obviously our, our listeners aren't going to be able to see this, but maybe we'll just post the graphic <laughs> underneath uh, when, we, when we post this episode on Twitter. But like, there's just a great graphic going along with this phrase that he learned with is like a person winking and giving finger guns while saying you are a clown. Yeah. And it just really, I, I mean, it just, it's like the icing on the cake. So there's your shout out, Nat, please stop bothering me. Um, I hope you'll continue listening to the show though. And giving me your notes as always. Ash, back to you. Yeah. Also for any uh, fellow Seinfeld fans who listen to this, you might recognize the word because in the uh, episode where they go to the circus and Kramer talks about being... No, they don't go to the circus. They go to the opera. And Kramer's afraid... They talk about Kramer being afraid of clowns and crazy Joe Devola is dressed up as a clown. The opera they go see is Pagliacci, which is... A, it's like a, a tragedy about this clown and whatever, but derives from the word, obviously, Pagliaccio, which, which is clown. So anyway, a little bit of Italian uh, food for thought. 
for you. Uh, on that note, watch From Scratch on Netflix uh, if you want to test the emotional limits of your heart. I think that's about it for us uh, this week, or maybe not for this week. We might be back Friday. If not, then that'll be it for us this week until we talk about the best teams in the West maybe early next week. But uh, for this episode, that's certainly it. Until then, I will remind you that if you are not one of our friends but still want a fan shout-out because you deserve one for supporting the show, hit us up on Twitter at Joey underscore double Y-O-U at Joseph Cacharo. Email joe.wolfond at thescore.com, joseph.cacharo at thescore.com. Find me on Instagram at joe underscore 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 cash. Maybe I'll even put a clown emoji next to my name uh, on Instagram. But uh, yeah, let us know how long you've been listening, where you listen from, what you like about the show, maybe what you don't. And I promise you, we will get you a shout out on a future episode as we did Nat today. Until one of those future episodes, for Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Cacharo, Pound the Rock.